Welcome everybody to today's uh, Middle East uh, breakfast seminar. My name is Christian Berg-Harpviken. I'm the director of the PRIO Middle East Center. Very pleased to see so many of you turn up on uh, an early Thursday morning. The PRIO Middle East uh, breakfasts are meant exactly for that, to capture busy people on their way to work and to give them uh, some breakfast and considerable food for thought. Uh, as they uh, move on. Therefore, it's a compact format, one hour in total, starting early in the morning, and uh, we're happy that uh, the format has appealed to you. But I'm sure the topic has also appealed to you. I'm very happy that we are uh, able today to host uh, this particular seminar on uh, the topic of a just environmental transition in the Middle East and North Africa. can hardly think of anything that is... Uh, more important, the dilemmas are uh, obvious, as are the need for uh, constructive solutions to those dilemmas. This is a seminar that we're hosting in cooperation with uh, the Masahat um, Festival for Arab Arts and Culture. We're very happy to be collaborating with uh, Masahat, and I'll uh, leave it to uh, its uh, leader, Zainab Ali, to say a few words about the festival so that we make sure you don't miss out on uh, other opportunities uh, when it comes to what's going on in Oslo this week. After that, my colleague, Pinar Tank, to my right here, will be moderating the event. But first, Zaina, about Masahat. Thank you, Christian, and uh, thank you everyone for coming. My name is Zainab Ali and I'm the director of uh, Masahat, uh, in case it's difficult to pronounce. Uh, it means uh, spaces in Arabic. It's the plural form of space in Arabic. And what we're trying to do is to create these spaces or Masahat for Arab arts and culture in Oslo. So the festival is, uh, we started on Tuesday and it's ongoing until Sunday. So I really encourage you to check the website. We have film screening today and a fundraising dinner and other film screenings on Sunday and uh, artist talk tomorrow and uh, closing concert on Saturday. So it's quite rich program. So please feel free to uh, check it out. And the theme of the festival this year is Decade to talk about the politics of environmental degradation in the Arab world. So very glad for this collaboration. Thank you, Prio and Prio Middle East Center. And now I'll hand it uh, to you, Pinar. Thank to you. The panel. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone, and can I also add my um, thanks to you for turning up at such an early hour. I'm really impressed with how many people are here today. Um, as Christian said, my name is Pinar Tank, and I'm a senior researcher at the Middle East Center here at PRIO. And I have to admit that this is a theme that I'm not as familiar with as I wish I, I could be. It's often a theme that we don't talk enough about, even though it is so critical right now. Um, one of the many grim side effects that we've seen from the Ukraine war is its impact on food and energy security. And the fallout, I think, is particularly um, concerning in the global south. Uh, there's problems with grain delivery, as you know, rising food prices and the rising cost of energy and uh, gas and oil in particular is likely to impact social stability in a range of ways, including through mass protests. And in Europe, we see this uh, in the rise of uh, 
populist politics. Um, these political tensions are also taking place at the same time as there is these extreme consequences of climate change. And they're becoming more obvious, as we saw through the very long and hot summer in Europe, and uh, more importantly, through the devastating floods in Pakistan. So seeking answers that connect these two issues of climate change and social stability requires a deeper examination of the concept of just transition, uh, which has become... Um, a keystone of the post-Paris climate agreement policy world, although many activists and frontline communities claim that it's lost its original meaning. Uh, as you know, the next two uh, conference of parties, uh, also known as COP meetings, will take place in the MENA. COP27 will be in Egypt in November this year, and COP28 in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, so this makes the region a focal point for this discussion. And today we're going to ask how the environmental and climate crises intersect with social inequality in the Middle East and North Africa. How do we root environmental and climate debates within the region in social justice and equity concerns? And finally, if we have time, we'd like to touch upon how Norwegian private sector investment can engage with just the just transition agenda in the region and this commitment to social justice. Um, I'd like to introduce my eminent speakers who've been working on this for some time. To my right is uh, Sarin and Karajarjian, I hope I haven't ruined the last name. Uh, she's a program director at the Environmental Politics Program at the Arab Reform Initiative. And prior to this, she worked for 15 years at the Issam Faris Institute for Public Policy and at the International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. And she's cur currently also pursuing a PhD in anthropology at the École des Hautetudes et Sciences Sociales in Paris. And she will be the first speaker and uh, she'll have an intervention of around 15, 20 minutes. And this will be followed by our commentator, uh, another eminent speaker, Aida Delpuich, who is an independent journalist currently based in Tunis. And covers, she covers themes related to biodiversity, energy transition, agriculture, pollution, and agri-food in the Mediterranean. She is also the North Africa coordinator for the Environmental Investigative Forum. So I will be moderating this panel. Uh, I thought how best to do this. And I think that some of the issues, it works better to moderate them as a conversation. So I'm hoping, uh, we've discussed this, that I, that I may sometimes prompt you for the sorts of things that I think I'm very curious about, and I'm sure the audience also would like to learn more about. Uh, but first, I would, um, uh, would like to give the floor to you, Sadi, to uh, begin the conversation. Thank you. So it's great to be here in person. Thank you so much, Pinar. Thank you, Priyo. Thank you, Masahat, for bringing us here in Oslo. And also great to have a colleague and friend with us on the same panel. Uh, so I will be addressing three issues today in the concept. First, globally, what does just transition mean? And how this concept was actually initiated and evolved. Two, looking more into the local, if you want, or regional context of the Middle East and North Africa, and how do environmental movements have been also created and initiated, and where do we stand today, given the multiple or multitude of crises that we are going through in the Middle East and North Africa, and three, opening it to the climate justice movements, and since Egypt and UAE will be hosting the conference of parties to the climate change, so we will be ending on that. So what does just transition mean? 
So the concept was developed in North, Af North American trade unions and to provide a framework for discussion on the kinds of social and economic interventions necessary to secure workers' rights, specifically livelihoods, in the shift from high carbon to low carbon. So the term just transition is widely thought to have been coined by the U.S. labor and environmental activist Tony Mazzocchi, who re referencing uh, an existing federal program to clean up environmental toxic waste and uh, from so several campaigns from the establishment of the similar super fund to protect workers' rights. So until his death in 2002, Mazzocchi and those who have closely worked with him sought to mobilize the Just Transition campaign as a means to addressing tensions and creating alliances between the labor and environmental justice movements. So Just Transition strategies were also first forged by labor unions, and environmental justice groups rooted heavily in low communities or low-income communities of color, specifically in the U.S., who saw the need to phase out the industries that were harming workers, community health, and the planet, and at the same time providing just pathways for workers to transition from one job to other new jobs. So this whole concept of environmental justice was brought forward as a movement that grew up as, or grew out of a response to the system of environmental racism, where communities of color and low-income communities have been and continue to be to date disproportionately exposed to and negatively impacted by hazardous pollution and industrial practices. So its roots go back to the civil rights movements in the United States and are sharp contrast to the mainstream environmental movements, which has failed to understand and address this type of injustices. So this environmental justice movement emphasizes as the bottom-up organizing, centering the voices of the people and the voices of the vulnerable, of those who have mostly been impacted by the crisis and these you know, new jobs or new creation of jobs and shared community leadership. So again, having arised in the early 1970s as a labor movement, the concept of just transition has evolved and spread to other areas and domains, so from environmental justice groups to the international trade union movements to international organizations and the private sector. So since its inclusion now in the Paris Accord or the Paris Agreement, it has also been adopted in global, national, and subnational policy circles. So building on these histories, members of the Climate Justice Alliance in the United States and globally, many of whom are rooted in the environmental justice movement, have, ad have adapted the definition of just transition that you mentioned to represent a host of strategies to transition whole communities to build thriving economies that provide dignified, productive and ecologically sustainable livelihoods, democratic governance and ecological resilience. So if we look at the International Labour Organization definition of just transition, a just transition here, quoting, means greening the economy in a way that is fair and inclusive as possible to everyone concerned, creating decent work opportunities and leaving no one behind. So a just transition involves maximizing the social and economic opportunities of climate action while minimizing and carefully managing any, many challenges, including through effective social dialogues among all groups impacted and respect the fundamental labor rights and principles. 
So there is a great risk if we think of just transition. We will not achieve a low-carbon or environmental, environmentally sustainable economy that is essential to the well-being of future generations if we do, do not tackle just transition. So the concept of just transitions, to summarize it, is being used to counter the idea that valuing job and job security specifically and caring for the environment are two mutually exclusive goals and to broaden out the debate on low-carbon transitions from technical questions around energy system transformation to its social justice implications. So, however, this term becomes, as the term has become more popular, it is increasingly understood and used in many different ways, deployed in the service of a wide job creation in the green economy to radical critique of capitalism, from a simple claim of job creation in the green economy to a critique of capitalism or refusal of market solutions. So the range can make it very difficult to clearly identify what just, just transition means. And it also raises different questions. What kind of transition do we want? In the interests of whom? And to what ends? Answering these questions is our in-depth you know, discussion of the meaning of justice in the age of climate change. So despite this very the diversity of meanings attached to the just transition in very general terms, so there are two broad definitions. One, the first builds on the term that arose in the U.S. labor movements, which I mentioned earlier in the late 20th century, in part in response to the environmental movements. This foundation shapes the term, the stricter definition, the idea that workers and communities whose livelihoods heavily depend will be lost and because of an intentional shift from fossil fuel to, um, to from away from fossil fuel related activities should receive support from the states so very state centric two a second broader definition of just transitions calls for justice in a more general of terms, not just for workers. It emphasizes the importance of not continuing to sacrifice the well-being of vulnerable groups for the sake of advantaging others, as, as has been the norm in many of the fossil fuel-driven economy. So in the second uh, definition, the term of just transition is used to refer to the notion that justice and equity must form an integral part of the transition towards a low carbon world. This broader, more radical definition of just transition calls for an ambitious social and economic restructuring that addresses the roots of inequality. So who and what should be included in just transition? And how far do the just transition policies of different countries reinforce existing inequalities, such as the underrepresentation of women and other marginalized groups in societies in fossil fuel governance and employment? Do they transfer biases from one industry to another without addressing the underlying norms and practices that drive inequality in the job market? So these are the questions that we, that we will raise. But then here I want to you know, quote Hamza Hamoushan, who's an Algerian activist and uh, has been you know, tracing these different crises for many, many years to the activities that you know, over-exploitation of the natural resources destined particularly for export toward markets. So expressed such as you know, oil and gas extraction in Algeria, as in phosphate mining and water-intensive agribusiness and mass tourism in Morocco and Tunisia, such activities have created what Naomi Klein mentions it, 
sacrifice zones, so areas disproportionately ravaged by extraction and processing inhabited by people whose bodies, health, land, and water are sacrificed to maintain the accumulation of capital. And here, secondly, to go back to the environmental justice. And if we look at the MENA, uh, how environmental movements have started. And for many, many years, you know, practitioners have looked at environment as silos. You know, fixing technical, finding technical solutions to heavily politicized issues. So... And it's siloed in technical fixes and technocratic expertise, so divorced from the connections to inequitable political economies, extractive models of development, armed conflicts, and occupation. So this way of thinking has bureaucratic and organizational implications that hinders an integrated approach. One such effect, and here I'd like to quote uh, now um, uh, Barn, Jessica Barnes, who's a anthropologist who has done a lot of work in Egypt. And you know, going back to the question, how do you actually look at climate change when uh, water is under Ministry of Water, when agriculture is under Ministry of Agriculture? when environment is under the Ministry of Environment. So who is really coordinating and how, how is this coordination happening? So the narrowness of this approach can also serve for depoliticizing the process. And let us trace back, you know, governmental policies from the conceptualization to their implementation to move beyond how decisions are made uh, to the political negotiations and cultural mediations through which those decisions translate or fail to translate in many times into concrete actions on the ground. So this is one. Second, given the influence of international donors at the national level on environmental programs through project-based funding, we cannot understand national-level decisions on the environment in the region without investigating the roles and interests of international donors. I mean, NGOs, at least if I, you know, or the Ministry of Environment in Lebanon, where I come from, acts like an NGO, a civil society actor who keeps on raising funds and asking for projects and, you know, going back to the international co community to actually do their own jobs. So all over the region climate activists have cooperated with international organizations. We've seen, you know, international movements, not just in the region, the Greenpeace, uh, Worldwide Fund, and others, in order to advance their shared agenda and have used conferences like the Conference of Parties to present their findings to the world. However, ultimately, there, there is an inherent friction here between economic objectives uh, of the developing world and the environmental concerns of the developed world. To what extent is it fair to impose restrictions and regulations on countries that desperately need the revenue from fossil fuel extraction to improve their finances and hopefully the living standards of their inhabitants? So one must remember that Western countries once had their own industrialized revolution, which gave them their dominant place in the world and that now they are pushing to benefit from other countries' industrial development under the guise of environmentalism. So this situation also veers into a form of neocolonialism, when some Western companies, under the pretext that they have a better environmental track record than other local companies, and we've seen this, Morocco, Tunisia, and other places, take or over or dictate uh, development projects such as resource extraction, without taking into account popular demands and popular concerns. 
those concerns led to popularity of climate finance. And we're seeing this now with the Conference of Parties. It's heavily focused on climate finance, supporting projects within the Arab region. So to create and these climate finance as a way are being used uh, to helping developing countries simultaneously unlock funds to create and develop green projects in a way that theoretically should also center the economy and create employment for the population. For example, if we look uh, in difference, if we look at the agenda of, and strategy of food and agriculture in the region, it is heavily state-centric. Uh, state so uh, civil society actors or activists are more on the receiving end rather than you know, engaging more with policymakers. Uh, if we look at Palestinian communi communities, they are suffering at the expense of environmental projects. And this is a green greenwashing par excellence, which uh, governmental propaganda against uh, you know, painting this as a green projects that actually does not benefit everyone. So just to give an example, um, the photovoltaic power plants in the Nakab Desert that have been opposed by the Palestinian Bedouins, who see these such projects as an attempt to displace them from their own land and their own resources. Environmental activists, another example in Iraq, environmental activists in the Iraqi South were at the front line of the 2019 protests, linking environmental decline in Iraq to widespread corruption within the political and economic system. So this created the 2019 Tishreen movements were in part spurred by clean water shortages in the south, in the south of Iraq, specifically in the Basra region, which is heavily a region that is heavily rich in water and, and, and in oil, and where more than 100,000 population were actually hospitalized because of I mean, water pollution. So in Lebanon, where also I came from, uh, these protests erupted in 2019. Environmental demands were at the center of the movements. People want better quality of life, access to water, access to clean water, electricity. And environmental activists were amongst those who led the fight and they consequently paid a heavy price. In Lebanon, if we look back after the 2019 revolution, climate activism became undistinguishable from political activism. As the political demands of the protest movement contain several crucial environmental demands. The state of the Lebanese environment was blamed on political factors, thus meaning that, they only, that only an overhaul of the political system could lead to a positive environmental development or environmental change. One example is the country's heavily dependence on uh, generators. I mean, we don't have electricity. We have one hour of electricity per day. The rest is heavily dependent on, on <laughs> paying money to generators uh, for electricity supply. And this is a basic right. So uh, just to give other examples, I mean, I don't want to go deep into uh, Lebanon, but as well, you know, in, in Tunisia, it's uh, environmental activism in Tunisia is as old as the state of Tunis, of, of, Tuni of Tunisia. So it's been several, you know, states as the origins against, you know, the industrialized uh, projects in the south of the country, particularly in the area surrounding Tozer and Gabes then population has long contested the establishment of pol polluting industrial projects. Maybe we can do like a short uh, intro about also conflict. I mean, we cannot think of the region without thinking of conflict and how actually conflict is heavily. I mean, if we look at uh, Iraq at the moment, which is the largest, uh, one of the most vulnerable countries because of, of climate change, um, 
and it's, we've, we were seeing, you know, because of, of the war and because of, uh, if we can say, of bad governance, uh, it has become, you know, as Iraq becomes increasingly hot and less arable, its security situation will further deteriorate as the state will find itself unable to serve the people's basic needs. And we're now talking about, you know, there's a whole report uh, from the International Red Cross about new climate refugees and what will happen, where will they go, how will already we, we have a lot of refugees in the region. So we're, how our host communities surrounding these countries will be, you know, accepting more and more refugees. Uh, also, refugee camps are also unsafe spaces for women. And here we're lo looking at, you know, where women, where they lack proper access to health care and the dis disproportionality of victims of violence. If we look at you know, 30% of women, uh, of Syrian women in Jordanian and Lebanese camps reported being victims of some sort of violence while going and finding water. And more and more, if we talk about agriculture even, I mean, agriculture is it's also our, our identity. 60% of women in the region work in agriculture. And I just want to you know, share an anecdote from a, a conversation I had between uh, a mother and, uh, and, and a daughter who actually came from a, a very you know, rural area from uh, the border of, Alep, of, uh, of Syria and now is heavily pro is projected into an urbanized context in Beirut. So the mother and the daughter they talk to each other. One is 30 years old, the other is 70 years old and it's still you know, going back to the traditions that we want to go back to our land, we want to be able to be in agriculture because also, you know, the state protects and gives subsidies and health benefits to agricultural workers. And the young lady does not want to go back to agriculture because of the war, because of, you know, being um, not living anymore in your land. You have to adapt to a new context of living. So will they go back to, to their own traditions? Will they go back to their own lands? And we're changing the way that we are interacting with our, you know, with our own, tra if you want, traditions in our own culture. So here, maybe we're ending with so the conference of parties. If we look around you know, Egypt, currently is receiving 27 of all, and it's heavily, you know, we're talking about climate finance. 27% of all climate fin finance in the MENA uh, is heavily, you know, <laughs> received by Egypt and has created a sovereign green bonds. Morocco is the second. Iraq now is preparing a national adaptation fund or an adaptation fu plan funded by the Green Climate Fund in cooperation with the United Nations Environment Program, which will be among the basic plans that the country will re rely on implementing this policy to ensure you know, flexibility and, and energy security. Iraq as well you know, is developing a 7.5 gigawatt of renewable energies in partnership with the UAE and the KSA and China. The government of Tunisia has more than 25 private companies that will be, you Know, heavily investing on solar panels or on, on solar projects. Um, while the Egyptian government highlighted its efforts and progress, it has made to fight climate change and, and argued that it needs that more needs to be done, especially as Egypt is one of the most vulnerable countries worldwide. So some of the actions that have been taken include sharing, you know, slashing fossil fuel subsidies to encourage a transition to greener energies, investing and encouraging renewable energies, encouraging energy efficiency via multiple acts and programs. So here maybe we can, you know, uh, continue on the, since you mentioned Pakistan and there's a lot of discussion about reparation. Who will be responsible for those populations? If we look at uh, Pakistan, is contributing less than 1% of its uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But now, more than 33 million population is under water. 
So who will pay for this? Uh, I mean, reparation has been brought into many, many times into the conference of parties. We've seen it last year in Glasgow, and some of the Western uh, or European countries are actually putting pledges. But it's, we're not there yet. It's not enough. Uh, Egypt has been even positioning itself that they will create a sovereign fund and will facilitate bec uh, this fund for uh, developing countries to actually help uh, displaced communities who have been affected by droughts or you know heavy heavy storms and, uh, and 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 be responsible of reparations so yeah this whole debate on reparation also called loss and damages is expected to be revived at this cop so we're expecting this to come back very, a lot in in Sharm el-Sheikh so the other point of contentation of Of, in the matter of, lo of loans versus grants. And this is something we he hear a lot, that the vast majority of climate finance is given in the forms of loans, uh, meaning that they're putting additional financial stress on countries that are already struggling with an inflated debt following the global shutdown caused by the pandemic. Uh, some have argued that this insistence on giving out loans with varying interest rates even qualifies as a form of, again, neocolonialism, as it accentuates the global death or depth slavery system and more and more countries from the global south will be dependent on these funds. So thus, what is COP's final responsibilities or the conference of parties' final responsibility in all of this? And how can it serve as a network to boost cooperation between different countries? While the past decade have seen tensions rise between Middle Eastern countries and their neighbors following the Arab Spring, sometimes a dangerous, to a dangerous extent, Um, recently, there have been you know, several attempts by different actors to reduce tensions and to foster more balanced cooperation. Indeed, a regional cooperation in lieu of tensions can lead to more collaboration and cooperation on the environment and more sharing of their technical or technological and human capital. And something like the Conference of Parties can serve as a network to foster and strengthen those ties. And we've seen this with the pandemic, that we are not local. Uh, we are, this is a, a, not a local public health concern. It is a global health crisis. So maybe ending up with, on a positive note, that you know, regional corporations, and we're seeing this much more and much more, countries like KSA and other parts of the, the region supporting more and more projects in the region, but also at the level of activists, I think. And what we can learn from feminist movements is the power of collective work. And it's only with collective work and sharing you know, common voices that we can influence policy making, not just at the level of the region, but also at the global level. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Um, excellent uh, introduction and quite a sort of a, quite a sweeping one, going through both the, some of the thinking and the I ideologies behind this, as well as giving examples. So um, thank you very much. I now invite you to comment. And I think you said something about wanting to talk a little bit more about your field research. Yes. Yeah, so. Yes. Go so ahead. good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here at such an early hour. Thank you, Pinar, Prayo, and Masahat, and Serin for this huge introduction to so many concepts. Um, I will maybe bring uh, some more concrete, grounded um, insight, um, because I've been documenting a lot 
um, in the field of the energy transition and specifically uh, just energy transition in Tunisia and uh, in the coming weeks in Morocco as well. Uh, but maybe I would just like to start by saying that this region, the MENA region, North Africa and Middle East and the Mediterranean in general is a, one of the world's biggest hotspots. That means that the temperature is increasing 20% faster than in the rest of the world. So there is a major crisis going on uh, in this area. And what has been happening in Europe this summer has already been here in this region for many, many decades. Um, so having said that, uh, I wanted also to quote uh, a sentence that I really much like about just transition. Uh, it is that... Transition is inevitable. We need to change our system. But injustice isn't. So how do we reconcile both in situations where sometimes transition, could it be the energy transition, the food transition, goes against the um, justice and equity fundamentals? Uh, so... I'll just give you a very quick overview of my work in Tunisia. I've been going to some very remote areas where um, renewable energy projects have been implemented. Um, Tunisia has started a very, very long um, way towards uh, implementing renewable energies. Uh, but this has mainly been dictated by foreign institutions and companies, as Sarin has uh, earlier said. Uh, so most of the projects, the solar or wind turbine projects that have been implemented in Tunisia, um, have been done with the money, most of the time loans, uh, of foreign investors that are not very much looking into justice and environmental impacts that such projects can have on local populations and local environments. And I will give you uh, a very emblematic example, which is the one of uh, Burj Esalhi. It is a very small village at the northern tip of Tunisia, where the first wind um, plant central has been implemented in the in in 2000, so 22 years ago, during the Ben Ali era, so the dictatorship era. Uh, and subsequently, many injustices have, um, have arrived after the implementation of this project. Um, social injustices, because people don't know where well where the where is the electricity is diver, diverted towards you know where is the electricity going they are living just near well 20 meters away wind turbines but they don't see this electricity the electricity network is very weak they experience uh, electricity shortages and this has led to many conflicts so you know we have been talking about the fact that this region 
we cannot talk about this region without talking about conflict. But when it comes to local examples, an unjust transition can lead to even, even more local conflicts. And these people of Boje Salhi have been fighting for more than 10 years since the Tunisian revolution to gain back first their lands because what is happening with the energy transition is that um, a lot of... Um, villages are experiencing land grabbing, meaning that in order to implement such big projects, uh, there is a need, you know, of uh, a very, very large space. And usually this space belongs, well, it's very complex, but uh, these uh, surfaces are collective lands. And what the state does with the complicity of uh, foreign companies is that It grabs away from the people these lands in order to implement projects that in the end won't benefit to uh, the local communities. So these people of Borja Salhi, but in many other places, in Tunisia, Morocco, Jordan, Palestine, are fighting to get back, um, well, to get back the use of their land. They're not even asking for you know, owning the land, but being able to, to use it because most of them are farmers. So taking away this land is taking away their only source of income also. Uh, so fighting for this and also fighting for, um, you know, jobs and uh, the social um, inputs that could come with uh, these kind of projects and that they have never practically seen um so you know talking about a just transition is also questioning these neo-colonial um roots that you know we find under this green transition and green doesn't mean it is just or fair Uh, and sometimes these uh, these questions or these projects remained remain unquestioned because they are green, they are supposedly fair, but it's not the case. Um, and so talking about this, I want also to point out the responsibility of foreign companies along with the responsibility of the states, especially, you know, in, uh, in countries like Tunisia that have a very weak economical state. Uh, so usually the investments are not Tunisian, they're foreign investments. We need investments. Uh, but unfortunately, foreign companies also see these projects as an opportunity for doing even more profit. Um, and maybe as we are in Norway, I just want to point out that recently in Tunisia, Uh, a Norwegian company that is called Skatec has been awarded three new projects uh, in Tunisia uh, that are equaling more than 900 uh, megawatts, which is very huge. And so in the coming years, this Norwegian company will have a big responsibility as for the notion of just transition um, in Tunisia. Um, along with many other uh, foreign um, companies. So, um, you know, Sarin has talked about 
all these sacrificed populations. These are I gave a very local um, example, but you know the Pakistanis example is at a total other scale. Uh, and so, who will be responsible for the loss of these people? Uh, especially that talking about energy and renewable energy projects, these projects and um, most, uh, but particularly um, solar renewable energy projects, um, consume a lot of water. And this is something we don't say enough. Uh, but in Morocco, a mega solar project has been implemented in the area of Warzazat. Um, and so you know, without these projects, uh, water resources are already depleting. But if you add, <laughs> at the same time, uh, a mega solar projects that will be using more than uh, 3 million cubic meters of water per year, uh, well, it can, I mean, it, this is nonsense. So also, you know, how do we um, make these projects more um, more suited to the environmental situations and limits that these countries are already facing. Um, and so environmental scholars and activists around the world consider that these large-scale energy projects repeat the same exclusions and inequalities found in conventional extraction industries that is of fossil fuels. And the irony is that these projects at first intend to mitigate climate change, but in practice they are only worsening the effects in the world's most uh, poor and water-stressed regions. So the question is not whether renewable energy is good or bad, uh, but rather how to design an energy transition that also gives priority to equity and to a fundamental rethinking of the economic and political models that gave rise to the climate crisis. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, thank, thank you. It was a very rich uh, discussion from both of you. And uh, I'm going to open up the floor because I see that we, as always, are running out of time. Um, but before I do, um, I um, would like to also ask a question myself. And I'd also like to uh, uh, mention to the audience that this is going to be uh, recorded. So that just bear that in mind during your comments. Um, I guess, I, if I may, begin the conversation uh, by asking you, I mean, we talk a lot about sort of the, the responsibilities and sort of the, the neo-colonialism of foreign companies, but we're not talking a lot about the responsibilities of states in the region and, uh, and democratic governance and, and just the fact that it's such a diverse region as well. I mean, you have, uh, is there the same impetus, for example, in Saudi Arabia for activism as there is in, in Egypt? Do you, see, do you see what I mean? This is, could you please say a little bit more about the responsibility of states and how the demo, democratic governance agenda links up to this idea of a just transition? You want to go? You can start. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult question. You put me on the corner, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, of course, the, the, respons the responsibility heavily relies on the state. I mean, it's, uh, it's the responsibility of the state, as I mentioned, the case of you know, Lebanon and other countries where uh, providing basic needs, you know, access to clean water, electricity, and all of this is the heavily uh, responsibility of the, of the state to do, to do that. Um, 
well, in the case of Lebanon, I mean, it's a weak state. Huh? We are we, we are completely uh, we are now facing a complete uh, bankrupt. Uh, and that's why people are on the streets. We mentioned this uh, before, and people are now. In the last one week, we had uh, seven robberies of banks, of people claiming to want their own money, money that that have been stolen from them. So, uh, so where where is this? Uh, you know, um, sometimes you know. I think yesterday we had also this discussion. Uh, is where do you actually? You know, people people need basic rights, and you're telling us, oh, we want we have to talk about climate change, but it's too far away from the actual realities. But it's on on. I mean, if you look at climate change, it is happening. We are facing major droughts in Syria. We've seen this in Iraq at the moment. Uh, the largest uh, Iraq is the most uh, is a country that is has the most water if you think about it with the Euphrates and the Tigris we've learned this since we were kids you know and now they're facing major water uh, injustices and insecurity you're changing the demographics of the society people are displacing from one region to another uh, within within the same country as well so so where is the line between the responsibility of the state and where do activists actually demand? You know, they go back to the streets. And, and I've, as I've mentioned, the political uh, tensions, not tensions, but demands are environmental demands. So we want access to clean water. We want electricity. These are environmental demands. So this is, this is where, you know, you, you change this whole concept or environment is far from what we're doing. It is there. It's, it's your everyday life, what, the air that you breathe, the water that you drink. It's a, it's a human right. Exactly. It's a human right. Uh, it's a right for you to have access to, uh, to these, to, to your, to your resources. So this is why they are, you know, activists, if we can say, but not just in, in, the, in the region, globally. You have environmental movements, and we've seen it. It started, we know, with union laborers and unionists. But again, now we're witnessing it even much more because people do want demands, do want better quality of life. And how the, the, yeah, the issue about activists uh, differ from one region to another, of course. I mean, <laughs> even within the European context, I'm sure activists are is, is different than other uh, and um, and the way that they mobilize is also uh, is is also different. Uh, how do you actually do campaigns? I mean, if we look, at, I'll give you a very concrete example when it comes to the solid waste crisis that we've witnessed. I mean, in Tunisia, in Lebanon, and other parts of uh, of in Yemen at the moment. Uh, how do you actually you know mobilize activists? Because the waste is there; it's visible. You see it. And if it's not there and we're removed, you don't then protest? No, it's, it's, uh, and, and to give you examples, I mean, activists went to the streets and had, you know, whole banners, you know, of a whole, do you want an incinerator in your, in your hometown? People, you know, saw this black, you know, black flag for weeks, uh, above different, you know, buildings and, People becoming started becoming more, you know, aware and and, and it became sensitive for them. Oh, we're going to see something black, a black smoke, a black thing. So these are the ways that you know campaigns, you know, and advo and activists mobilize. And also a lot of role is being, you know, on the journalists. When do you actually talk to journalists? At what point do you bring them to the table? And how are they? And, and I mean, we've seen more and more, you know, journalists in the region covering stories on environment, on food insecurity, on water injustices. We haven't had this in the back. There was one, you know, one, if you look at it, there was one uh, environment and development magazine that was 
you know, covering uh, the Arab world. Now we're seeing much more mainstream media covering uh, environmental movements, environmental injustices, uh, not because we are hosting the Conference of Parties in the region. It's, anyways, Conference of Parties is not new to the region. We had the Marrakesh Accords, we had uh, Doha. So, I mean, this is where, you know, the, the movements grow at the local level, but also at the international I mean, activists are exchanging information across the Mediterranean. Huh? We have uh, very strong movements in Greece, in, in Italy, in Spain that that we learn from. As it becomes more Ori. acute, of course, yeah. it affects at the grassroots level. Yeah. But as a journalist, <laughs> yeah. would you like to add anything to Yes, I mean, yeah? the question of the state's responsibility is a very important one. Yeah. Because I think, in my opinion, it goes along with the company's responsibilities. Uh, and what our states, you know, permit... Um, I mean, the final responsibility is actually theirs, not the companies. But when you look at how the strategies are made, you know, in terms of food, um, agriculture, energy, who does these strategies? It's not about who implement them, but at the beginning, you know, who ferment them? And you you'll realize that it's not our countries that, you know, are at the origin of these strategies. I'll give a very simple example nowadays, and we'll start to hear more and more about green hydrogen. And I've done a research for ARI on this topic. Uh, so green hydrogen is presented as the energy from the for the future, you know, um, made out of um, water and um, renewable energy. But so who has come up with this technology, with the idea of implementing, you know, um, green hydrogen production plants in the world? Actually, it's the EU and more particularly Germany. You know, and this can be understood in a very easy way, you know, um, because of the geopolitical and energy tension the phase out of uh, Russian gas energy, um, I mean, Germany has to find solutions and very quickly. So they've been um, building many partnerships in the in the um, Middle East and in the MENA region in general with Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, the UAE to implement in these countries um, mega solar projects that will help and that will be producing green hydrogen that will then be sent back exported yeah to germany and europe um the uk also is following germany's path so exactly exactly 100 <laughs> percent an extractivist uh, industry but so what our what is our state's responsibility in this you know can they say no I mean, thinking of Tunisia, do we have the means to say no? Because we need foreign investments and we want to, you know, to put ourselves on this market and to have a position on this market. But at the same time, is this just, is this fair for our communities? Um, will, what will Tunisia gain from it, you know, for its energy transition, for reaching its goal? Uh, it has announced that by 2030, it wants to... Um, uh, to produce 45% of it, its electricity from uh, renewable energies. So, you know, these are questions we must mm -hmm. and that the MENA states must be asking. Mm -hmm. uh, but once again, you know, MENA region as a whole doesn't mean that all the states are on the same uh, no. 
Yeah. And it won't have the same consequences either, depending on what resources they have, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. But I would like to open the floor, since we have 10 minutes, and I'm sure there's many questions here from, from the participants uh, who are listening. Um, yes, please go ahead. If you could just say where you come from first and then raise your question. I think we have a microphone there. Good morning. Thank you for a very inspiring uh, presentation on just transition. My name is Krishnan from Urban Economy Forum. It's an international NGO. <clears throat> what I'm wondering is you mentioned about um, climate finance. Climate finance is something that quite, quite interesting because of the fact that uh, billions of dollars have been promised and not much has been spent yet, you see. That's also a kind of a contradiction there. So I'm wondering, countries like Norway, which are major donors for these financing mechanisms, when they meet at COP27 or activists here, what should be their role in trying to see how climate finance can be also contribute to just transition, you know? And like, for example, climate, climate finance, you cannot access, communities cannot access climate finance. It has to go through intermediaries, so which is a bureaucratic thing, as you know, government and corruption, all kinds of things. So are the mechanisms that we can create in climate financing that could, you know, uh, benefit communities, like, you know, with groups, uh, you know, suffering from water shortage or cooking fuel, whatever it is, yeah? The, uh, w what would be the message for Norway, Norwegian activists, Norwegian government, when they meet at COP20? So can they role, play a role in really trying to see that cl climate financing is done in a just way? Thanks. Uh, thank you for the question. I think it's a very, very um, important question. And it's true, as you've said, that communities have not really seen the color of, this, uh, of the money has, that has been promised. <laughs> um, and so... In my opinion, I think that the first thing that can be implemented in order for these communities to benefit from the money that donors such as Norway or other countries that have a responsibility in the climate crisis um, is maybe to reduce as much as possible the intermediaries between these communities and the donors. You know, maybe um, make it more direct finding a way, uh, I'm not a specialist, um, but, you know, finding a way of putting in touch the donors and these communities um, in order for, for it to have maybe um, a better, for this money to have a better reach and to answer uh, the, the most important issues and problems. So that would be my, my answer. I mean, yeah, it's a very good question. And to go back to Aida's point, I think there are two things when it comes to climate finance. One is who's setting up the agenda, okay? And uh, who will benefit from these different projects and pledges? And how will they be distributed? Under what conditions? I mean, many of these uh, climate finance mechanisms require so many bureaucratic you know, process, pro procedures or processes that... Already, many of the Middle East and North African countries are in debt. And these are loans. And two lo loans versus, and, uh, and here, I mean, uh, it's very important to differentiate between loans and grants. Loans, that means that the, the, the governments of our regions will be <laughs> indefinitely uh, looking for sources to pay back to the countries of the North, which we are. I mean, this is a form of neocolonialism. So you are completely in depth as countries from the MENA region to, respond, to paying back these different loans for finances and projects that will be uh, implemented in our region 
and with and we don't even know uh, that, that these these projects will actually benefit the local populations uh, in a way and second um, you i mean yeah i mean the land and this is the, the concept of extractivism and you know the sacrifice zones so you are pushing uh, to have solar panels in an area uh, or you know green hydrogen types of projects in specific areas where is using the land and water that which it was already very scarce in the region and then asking that these you know these um, resources will be helping countries of the north and local communities will not be benefiting from these types of projects okay maybe some jobs will be created and this is a nice way to put it uh, to frame it but then who who really benefits uh, from from these projects and and your sacrifice the concept of sacrifice zones is very interesting because you're sacrificing an entire population from its land to its water to its way of you know of its health because to to have more climate finance but at the same time we are going through so many financial crises so you 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 do want to have more development projects and this has historically if we look since the 70s been pushing worldwide to have more we want to be developed as, as a region we want to be more developed we want to be more developed we want to we want to have a better uh, you know better resources for our populations but it's costing to what cost who will pay the cost of this when your resources are being used when you're not you're already living in inequalities you have uh, unfair policies in 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 the region so to the benefit of whom to the benefit of the west i mean it's very very clear uh and some some countries will be championing uh, much more. And uh, again, uh, climate finance is not just from north to west. It can be also from the south to south, uh, giving the example of uh, China and India and uh, and others. So interesting. Um, is there any? Are there any other questions that uh, the audience would like to ask? I think that uh, then we will close. The, the 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 discussion for today, but I think it's such an important discussion, and part of me wishes that you could give this kind of seminar to those companies yeah. uh, that are now going to be uh, investing in these kinds of projects. I think there's a lot of value in what you're saying, and it also might be a kind of narrative that they're not used to hearing, yeah. and I think it definitely should be heard. One of the last night they also gave a very good uh, presentation. Uh, Either and Serene was there uh, at the Literaturhus, and one of the things that really struck me in that presentation, someone said that green politics has become a civilizational discourse, and so as long as we we talk about it, it's very easy. We, we talk about it. We often talk about it in ways that green washes it as well. Mm. So every project uh, that is green is seen to be good. But what we're seeing from the discussion today is that these kinds of green projects also are are continuing the kinds of inequalities that were there in earlier uh, uh, projects with, with with extraction industries. So thank you very much for making us much more aware. And uh, I wish you every success. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. <laughs>